You remember the scene from A Few Good Men? You all seen that movie? Who's seen? Anybody seen A Few Good Men? Okay. Scene from A Few Good Men, it gets to its climactic point toward the end. It's in the courtroom, and Daniel Caffey, played by Tom Cruise, is interrogating Lieutenant Colonel Nathan R. Jeff, United States Marine Corps. Uh, it's kind of how he, he presents himself all the time. Lieutenant Colonel is on the stand, and he's being interrogated by this lowly naval prosecutor, Daniel Caffey. And Caffey asks him a question, and the judge says, you don't have to answer that. And Jessup says, I'll answer the question. And he looks at Caffey and he says, you want answers? Caffey says, I think I'm entitled to them. You want the truth? I want the truth. And what does he say? What? You can't what? You can't handle the truth. And he goes on to say, son, here's, his, here's the quote. Son, we live in a world that has walls. Picture your best Jack Nicholson. <laughs> we live in a world that has walls. And those walls have to be guarded by men with guns. Who's going to do it? You? You, Lieutenant Weinberg, he says, I have a greater responsibility than you can possibly fathom. You weep for Private Santiago and you curse the Marines. You have that luxury. You have the luxury of not knowing what I know. That Santiago's death, while tragic, probably saved lives. You, 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 I'm in it, right? Okay. That's one of my favorites. Anyway. If they redo it, I'm playing Lieutenant Colonel Nathan R. Jessup, United States Marine Corps. I'm, I'm in, okay? It's my audition. Bear with me. And my existence, he says, while grotesque and incomprehensible to you, saves lives. You don't want the truth. Because deep down in places you don't talk about at parties, you want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. You know, he, you know how he gets into it. We use words like honor, code, loyalty. We use these words as the backbone to a life spent defending something. You use them as a punchline. I have neither the time nor the inclination to explain myself to a man who rises and sleeps under the blanket of the very protection I provide than questions the manner in which I provide it. I'd rather you just said thank you and went on your way. Otherwise, I suggest you pick up a weapon and stand a post. Either way, he says, in so many words, I don't really care what you think you are entitled to. The colonel on the stand tells the lowly prosecutor, who do you think you are? We, we've arrived at a point in our story in our series on the book of Job and the character Job where this scene in A Few Good Men is really what Job has kind of been wanting all along. To have God in a courtroom essentially where he can gain a hearing, where he can ask God to say, please explain yourself. What you have done appears to me not to be fair and not to be right. We're in the story in chapter 38 this morning. We have fast-forwarded quite a bit, if you haven't noticed, between last week and this. Job has been described in the very first part of this book by God himself as a man who is full of integrity, who is a repentant man. Anytime that he encounters evil, he shuns it and he repents of it. And he is a man who fears God, who worships God alone. And yet Satan says to God, the only reason he does all that is because you've made his life so easy. Let me attack him. Let me take away things from him. And I guarantee you, God, there is nothing about you, Satan says, nothing about you, God, worth worshiping except what you give to people. If you take all that stuff away, they don't care about you. They'll curse you to your face. 
And God sets out to prove to Job and to all of us that there is more to God than just what he gives, more worthy of worship in who he is than just what he gives. And so Satan is allowed not only to touch Job, but to nearly destroy him. And all of his stuff is taken away. His children all die. The support of his wife is removed, and Job then is struck with a disease that makes him an outcast. And finally, his friends come to him, and after silence for seven days in which they don't know what to say, they come up with lots of things to say over a period of, of a couple dozen chapters, and they begin to tell him all that he's done wrong. Job, if you just admit that you've done wrong, then God will remove all this, because we know, Job, that people who are experiencing bad things have done something bad to deserve it. And if you're getting bad things, then obviously, Job, you need to confess your sin. They have preached to him what we've called retribution theology, that if you do good, you get good. If you do bad, you get bad. If you're getting good, it's because you've done good. And if you're getting bad, it's because you've done bad. And they preached to him over and over and over. And finally, his three friends in their cycles of speeches, and we see Job in tremendous pain. One fourth final friend shows up, and over a few chapters, he begins to preview a little bit of what God will say to Job. And that's what his friend Elihu had done for several chapters leading up to number 38. And today we get to the point where Job gets an answer from God. And in so many ways, the answer from God is just like that from Lieutenant Colonel Nathan R. Jessup to Daniel Caffey. You can't handle the truth, Job. And who do you think you are? But it's not in the same tone necessarily that Lieutenant Colonel Nathan R. Jessup gave to the lowly Daniel Caffey, a tone of arrogance and condescension. This tone from God is one also that includes love. Because in a very loving way, God leads Job to the discovery that Job is not truly able to handle the truth, nor is he in control like he thinks he is. This morning, we're going to cover Job 38, 39, 40, and 41. Some of you just think, ain't no way, dude. You ain't getting through that. There ain't no way. I've heard you preach for nine years. There ain't no way. Getting through four chapters in one day. Yeah, that's right. Let's go. Here we go. Start reading. That's right. <laughs> but that's what we're going to do, okay? <clears throat> All right, we got a business meeting at 6. So long as we clear out, I think by 5, the kids can come in here and practice. <laughs> But beginning in Job chapter 38, God answers Job, but he does so with questions. And he has two main questions that we'll look at this morning with some very specific things underneath it. But look first in the first few verses of chapter 38. The Lord answered Job from the whirlwind, and he said, Who is this who obscures my counsel with ignorant words? Get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, you will inform me. So from the whirlwind from the storm, kind of like what Job's life has been, God speaks to him. Now, don't miss a couple things real quick. God speaks to Job directly to him. He gives him dignity. He doesn't just spout off as if Job is not really there and has no value. God speaks directly to him. And he dignifies Job as a human being. He doesn't necessarily give Job the answers he wants, as we'll see. But he dignifies him. And what, what would God say here? I mean, if you had God in the courtroom at this point, you say, God, okay, I need you to explain yourself. What would you want him to say? Well, you know, hey, let me tell you, Job, uh, why all this has happened. Uh, if you would just, you know, I, I know it's been tough. I know, I know you've had a really rough go of it. But if you just sit down and, and listen, I'm going to explain everything. It will all make sense to you. That's what Job wanted, right? Job's big question through all of his, of his tragedies and pain and suffering was what? One, one word question. What was it? Why? 
Okay, Job, sit down. Let me, let me tell you. Let me explain why all this has happened. But if you know Job 38 through 41, that's not what God does. Instead, God starts asking the questions. And he gives two speeches and asks two general questions. First question, are you in control? That's the first question. Now, chapters 38 and 39 cover this, okay? So I, there's some, some sub-questions under this that you may want to kind of jot down as we go through this, and I'll, I'll try to make sure that you, that you get those. They won't be on the screen. You just kind of make some notes there on your outline. Uh, some specific questions that reinforce this overall question. Job, are you in control? He, he first asked him, beginning in verse 4 of chapter 38, are you, Job, in control of the created order? So you just, just created order. Where were you, look at verse 4, when I established the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who fixed its dimension? Certainly you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? What supports its foundation or laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Job, were you there? Did you do all that? You in charge, Job? You in control of all the, the created order and how it runs and so on? And then secondly, another section, are you in control, Job, of the waters and what they symbolize? Look at verse 8. Who enclosed the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its blanket, when I determined its boundaries and put its bars and doors in place, when I declared you may come this far but no farther, your proud waves stop here. Job, are you in charge of those waters and what they symbolize? Listen, the sea for Hebrew people, the sea for ancient people was a, was a place of, of mystery and fear. So when we see in poetry here, this is poetry in the book of Job, it's symbolizing something else. Job, are, are you in charge of those things that scare you? Are you in charge of the water? Did you, did you put a limit on those things? Can you do that? Next section begins verse 12. Job, are you in control of the light and the darkness and what they symbolize as well? Have you ever in your life commanded the morning or assigned the dawn its place so that it may seize the edges of the earth and shake the wicked out of it? The earth is changed as clay is by a seal. Its hills stand out like the folds of a garment. Light is withheld from the wicked and the arm raised in violence is broken. Basically what he's saying, Job, are you, are you in charge of light and darkness and what they symbolize? Do you realize this morning when the sun came up, it's one more way of God saying the darkness won't last forever? One more way. Now, I know our days got a little shorter beginning yesterday. And so we're going to experience, and listen, I, I, it is no coincidence, none. It is no coincidence that the end of baseball season also brings with it more darkness during the day. <laughs> it's no coincidence at all. World Series ends, pff, daylight saving time ends. Dark. And you know what happens when the spring comes and spring training begins? We get more light. It's amazing how God did all that. <clears throat> but every day when the sun comes up, it's just another symbol. God is not finished. The darkness will not last forever. Even during the wintertime when the days are shorter and darkness seems to rain starting at about 2.30 in the afternoon, that's still the next day the sun will come up and God says, I'm not finished. He goes on to ask Job in verse 16, Job, are you, are you in control of the oceans and what they symbolize? Have you traveled to the sources of the sea or walked in the depths of the oceans? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have, have you comprehended the extent of the earth? Tell me if you know all this, really. What about this light and darkness he's saying to Job? Where is the road uh, to, to the home of light? Do you know where the darkness lives so, so you can lead it back to its border? Are you familiar with the path to its home? Don't you know you're already born so you've lived so long he says what about the seas job you you you've been to the depths really what about this light and dark thing you know anything about that 
Are you in control, Job? He says, beginning in verse 22, of the waters that destroy and heal. Have you entered the place where the snow is stored? Or have you seen the storehouses of hail, which I hold in reserve for times of trouble, for the day of warfare and battle? You know what one of the plagues was on Egypt? Hail. What road leads to the place where light is dispersed, where the source of the east wind that spreads across the earth? Who cuts a channel for the flooding rain or clears the way for lightning to bring rain on an uninhabited land, on a desert with no human life, to satisfy the parched wasteland and cause the grass to sprout? Does the rain have a father? Who fathered the drops of dew? Whose womb did the ice come from? Who gave birth to the frost of heaven? When water becomes as hard as stone and the surface of the watery depths is frozen. Job, you control of the waters? You in control of what brings life and what brings destruction? You in control of that? And he goes on in verse 31. He says, are you in control of the movements of the stars and the heavens and what they symbolize? Can you fasten the change of Pleiades, or loosen the belt of Orion? Can you bring out the constellations in their season and lead the bear and her cubs? Do you know the laws of heaven? Can you impose its authority on earth? Can you command the clouds so that a flood of water covers you? Can you send out lightning bolts as they go? Do they report to you and say, here we are? Who put wisdom in the heart or gave the mind understanding? Who has the wisdom to number the clouds? Or who can tilt the water jars of heaven when the dust hardens like cast metal and the clods of dirt stick together? They said, Job, you in charge of all that stuff that goes on? What he's saying is, Job, you in charge of running the world? The way that it operates? Then he goes on, he talks about some animals. Are you in charge of feeding the predators? Verse 39, can you hunt prey for a lioness or satisfy the appetite of young lions? I love, listen, I love watching Cat Week or whatever it is. Big Cat Week on National Geographic or something. There's something about me. I can't, it fascinates me to watch those lions hunt with a wildebeest and a water buffalo and stuff. It's amazing. And you know what? Those water buffaloes, they come through at the same time every year. Hmm. The lions are just kind of hanging around. Hmm. I wonder, do they really know? They really know it's time for all the water buffaloes? Maybe they do. You know who put that in their heart? You know who set up that herd of water buffaloes to come through? When they crouch in their dens and lie in wait within their lairs, who provided the ravens food? When it's young, cry out to God and wonder for lack of food. Job, are you in charge of feeding those wild predators. And then he talks about timing that Job couldn't quite understand in, in chapter 39. Job, are you in control of that timing that you can't explain? Do you know when mountain goats give birth? Have you watched the deer in labor? Can you count the months they are pregnant so that you know the time they give birth? They crouch down to give birth to their young and they deliver their newborn. Their offspring are healthy and grow up in the open field. They leave and do not return. Job, you in charge of that kind of timing? He goes on in chapter 39, are you control of the animals that roam free, that are even dangerous and cannot be tamed? Look what he says. Who set the wild donkey free? Who released the swift donkey from its harness? I made the wilderness its home and the salty wasteland its dwelling. It scoffs at the noise of the village and never hears the shouts of a driver. It means it's not tamed. It roams the mountains for its pasture land, searching for anything green. Would the wild ox be willing to serve you? Would it spend the night by your feeding trough? Can you hold the wild ox to a furrow by its harness? Will it plow the valleys behind you? Can you depend on its strength because its strength is great? Would you leave it to do your hard work? Can you trust the wild ox to harvest your grain and bring it to your threshing floor? Job, you in charge of these things? Are you in control, Job, of the things that don't make sense? He goes on to talk about an ostrich. Look at this. It's kind of funny. The wings of the ostrich flap joyfully. 
But are her feathers like plumage and plumage like the storks? She abandons her eggs on the ground and lets them be warmed in the sand. She forgets that a foot may crush them or that some wild animal may trample them. She treats her young harshly as if they were not her own, with no fear that her labor may have been in vain. For what? For God has deprived her of wisdom. He has not endowed her with understanding. When she proudly spreads her wings, she laughs at the horse and his rider. Do you realize how dumb an ostrich is? <laughs> That's what God is saying. Job, what about that? This stupid bird flaps its wings, but what can it do? Fly. Keep flapping, dude. Can't fly. Just keep on going like he's going to get off the ground eventually. Dumb, stupid, stupid animal. And then the female ostrich lays eggs and does what? Flaps away. There they go. They just run off. Just leave the eggs right over there. What are those? I don't, I don't know where they come from. I have no idea. God is saying, do you realize how dumb this animal is? And who made it so dumb? God says, I have taken away any wisdom that this animal has. What? Yeah, God says, doesn't make any sense, does it? And there's some stuff in life that ain't going to make any sense to you. Look at the ostrich. Doesn't make any sense. And Job, guess what? You ain't in charge of that stuff either. There are some things in life that just don't make sense. An ostrich is a stupid animal. And God says, I'm the one who made it stupid. Yeah, have you ever read that? You ever, you ever read that in the Bible, have you? That God literally made the ostrich to be a stupid animal. That's what it says. And yet, verse 18, she proudly spreads her wings. Well, it can't fly, but she laughs at the horse and its rider. Why? Because it can run and nothing can catch it. God says, I made this animal so dumb, but look what it can do. And then he goes on. He says, Job, are you in control of the weapons of war? Look at verse 19. Do you give strength to the horse? Talking about a war horse. Do you adorn its, his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like a locust? His proud snorting fills one with terror. He paws in the valley and rejoices in his strength. He charges into battle. He laughs at fear since he is afraid of nothing. He does not run from the sword. A quiver rattles at his side along with a flashing spear and a lance. He charges ahead with trembling rage. He cannot stand still at the trumpet's sound. When the trumpet blasts, he snorts defiantly. He smells the battle from a distance. He hears the officer's shouts and the battle cry. The, the war horse was the most terrifying weapon of war back during that time. You think what are the more terrifying weapons of war in today's world? You in control of those things, Job, he says. And then he goes on in verse 26. So you see God just goes on and on and on. Are you in control of the birds that are so majestic? Look at verse 26, chapter 39. Does the hawk take flight by your understanding and spread its wings to the south? Does the eagle soar at your command and make its nest on high? It lives on a cliff where it spends the night. Its stronghold is on a rocky crag. From there it searches for prey. Its eyes penetrate the distance. Its brood gulps down blood where the, when where the slain are, it is there. Are you in control, Job? Are you in control, Brad? Are you? That's God's first answer to Job's question of why. You in control, bud? Why'd all this happen, God? Hey, you in control? Are you really in control? And what is the answer to our question? To God's question, rather. What is the answer? Uh, no. God says, you in control? No, no, no. Okay. Since you are not, what's the implication? 
You're not in control? Then trust the one who is. Job wonders why, 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 why? God, this is wrong. This is unfair. Why are you doing this? God shows up and says, Job, you in control? No. Then trust the one who is. Trust the one who created and set the motion, set in motion the laws of physics and the earth and nature and the universe. Trust the one who controls the weather. Trust the one who controls and manages all aspects of, of the animal kingdom that you so love, from predator to prey, from wild to tame, from wise to stupid. Trust the one who is in control of the waters and what they symbolize. Trust the one who's in control of light and darkness and what they symbolize. And when life doesn't make sense, trust the one who created life. And when your situation is painful beyond belief, trust the one who the Bible says endured the cross, scorned its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God the Father. When you do everything you know to do, when you've lived the way that you think you're supposed to live based upon what you know about God and you are seemingly punished for it and everything goes wrong, trust the one who Paul wrote knew no sin but became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And when everything feels out of control, why? Because it is. Trust the one who is in control, why? Because he is. Now I'm going to admit to you this is not easy. And it's something I struggle with. Last night, we were traveling back from Lexington. We had gone to the All-State Choir concert. Lucy and Hank both made All-State Choir, and we traveled to Lexington, and we were coming back and traveling on the Western Kentucky Parkway. And, and I was working, actually, on finishing up this sermon. I'm sitting in the passenger seat. Nancy was driving, and, and out of nowhere, there, there appear three dogs in the middle of the highway, walking. <laughs> Walking. The first one was small. <clears throat> Nancy missed that one. The next two were big, and she hit one of them. She tried to split them. She did pretty good, really. Um, she, I was pretty impressed. Um, but it hit the front, the, the 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 right front of the bumper. Okay. And of course, we're traveling at seventy miles an hour down the highway, and and obviously the dog is you know, not going to make it. And, and so we pull over, uh, we were between Beaver Dam and Central City, which is, you know, if you put an X in the middle of nowhere, there you are. And, and, uh, so we pull over in Central City and survey the damage. And my first question is, Lord, really, <laughs> really working on a sermon for crying out loud. Really? I want some answers, God. I think I'm entitled to them. I want the truth. You know God's answer? You can't handle the truth. I mean, I'm studying this stuff, and we hit a dog. Big dog. It was big. The hair's still in the van. It's big. <clears throat> and you know what I have to come to grips with? I don't know some of your your heart's breaking for the dog, not the van. My heart broke for the van. I just be honest with you. <laughs> Love you. Anyway, <clears throat> you know what? I, I I'm reading this, and you know what God is saying? You in control? Well, no, I wouldn't put three dogs in the middle of the highway. <laughs> be honest with you. You know. There's one more reminder, isn't it, Brad? That you're not in control. And so, buddy, you better learn to trust the one who is. Because there was nothing we could have done to prevent those stupid dogs from being in the middle of the highway. Nothing. 
God's first answer, I think, would have been enough. But he's got more to address because Job not only thought that that God wasn't doing a good job of being in control, but he also thought that God had let evil and death get out of control. That it was too much. So his second question overall in chapters 40 and 41 is, Job, are you afraid of evil and death? Are you afraid of those things? Are you afraid of death? Are you afraid of, of evil? Do you think I'm handling these things appropriately? Look at verse 6 of chapter 40. Get ready to answer me. He says, like a man, I'll question you. You really going to challenge my justice, he goes on to say? And then look at verse 15. Can you stop death, he asks Job. Can you really understand it? He says, look at behemoth. Now stop there for just a second. Behemoth. This is often understood to be some sort of hippopotamus. But the way that it's described in poetry, okay, in in this language, doesn't exactly describe specifically a literal hippopotamus. So we have tried to say, what is this behemoth thing? It doesn't fit not only with the description, but it also doesn't fit with what what God is talking about to Job. He's talking about defending his justice. Job, you think I'm doing a poor job here of of being just? Uh, Hey, go see if you can wrestle a hippo. What does that have to do with justice? That doesn't make any sense. God, hey, Job, you think I'm not just? And okay, uh, what about this hippo thing over here? No, that's not what God seems to be talking about. Behemoth actually is a plural word that means super beast. Okay, it's coming out on, on, you know, Nick Jr. or something, Super Beast. That's the, the next big cartoon. That's what it means. It means Super Beast of some kind. And so, Job, when you look at this Super Beast, what do you see? Job, when you hear about this behemoth, when the stories are told of this mythical figure, what do you think about? It seems to be something that never gets its fill. It can only be destroyed by God. He says, look at behemoth which I made along with you. He eats grass like an ox, verse 16. Look at the strength of his loins and the power and the muscles of his belly. He stiffens his tail like a cedar tree and the tendons of his thighs are woven firmly together. His bones are bronze tubes and his limbs are like iron rods. He is the foremost of God's works. Only, listen to this, only his maker can draw the sword against him. Only his maker can destroy him. The, the hills yield their food for him while all sorts of wild animals play there. He lies under the lotus plants, Hiding in the protection of marshy reeds. Lotus plants cover him with their shade. The willows by the brook surround him. Though the river rages, Behemoth is unafraid. He remains confident. Even if the Jordan surges up to his mouth, can anyone capture him while he looks on or pierce his nose with snares? So Behemoth is huge and strong and dangerous and always consuming, unafraid and able to be captured by no one. The symbolism here points to something like death that can never get its fill. I think really that's what behemoth symbolizes. God says, Job, you think I'm not being just. You think I'm not controlling death. Well, you afraid of that? It's because you can't control it. God says, I'm the one, the only one who can defeat it. And then there's another mystical figure in chapter 41. Can you pull in, look at, look at, look at the word, Leviathan. Now, if you've, if you've been to Sunday school and had somebody try to explain it to you, Behemoth was a hippo and Leviathan was a crocodile. So it's, it's got this scales and so on and so forth. Often considered to be the ancient crocodile. But, but again, why would God be talking about his justice and then say, Job, uh, hey, since you think I'm not just, uh, you know, how about you go be the crocodile hunter for a while and see how you can do it? 
that doesn't really make a lot of sense. In ancient literature, and even in the Bible as we see, Leviathan is a symbol of evil, this dragon, this fire-breathing dragon, a multi-headed monster that eventually kind of is symbolized, again, in the book of Revelation as Satan himself. So it's really doubtful in the poetry of this chapter in Job that God is talking about whether Job is a crocodile hunter or not or one of those crazy dudes in swamp people or whatever. It's, he's, not, he's not talking about that. He says, can you pull in Leviathan with a hook? Tie down his tongue with a rope. Can you put a cord through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he beg you for mercy or speak softly to you? Will he make a covenant with you so that you can take him as a slave forever? Can you play with him like a bird or put him on a leash for your girls? Will traitors bargain for him or divide him among the merchants? Can you fill his hide with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay a hand on him. You will remember the battle and never repeat it. Any hope of capturing him proves false. Does a person not collapse at the very sight of him? No one is ferocious enough to rouse Leviathan. And he goes on to talk about this symbol, this figure that is so scary and so unable to be conquered by men. And I think just as behemoth symbolizes the, the death that never gets enough, I think Leviathan, as we see fast-forwarding in the Scripture, symbolizes evil, the personification of evil. And all of what Job is told by God sounds so terrifying because it is. Evil is meant to scare us. It should. It's powerful and it's dangerous and it's real. That fear that you feel when you're going to a place you've never been before, Sometimes when people will come here and they're students at Murray State, I've joked with you and told you this before, we find out that we're from the same town. Hey, I'm from Louisville. I'm from Louisville too. And I will ask them, hey, where, you know, where did you go to high school? What part of town are you from? And inevitably, it seems, they're from the east end of town. My dad says that's where all the people got their windows rolled up because their air conditioners actually work. <laughs> we ain't from that end of town. And I'll tell them a conversation will get back around and I'll say, you know, I'm from where your parents told you never to go. Oh, whatever. I said, I'm from Dixie Highway. You're right. They told me never to go to Dixie Highway. Don't go west of I-65. Don't go there. You felt that fear though, haven't you? I don't know about this. I don't know where I'm at. Boy, I'm in Nashville. I'm in Louisville. I'm in Lexington. Man, I don't know where I am. Am I in the right part of town, the wrong part of town? That fear because of evil that might be around, or that fear that you feel when you watch the news this morning or this evening. Job says, God says rather, Job, are you afraid of death, that behemoth? Are you afraid of evil, that Leviathan? Yes. Then trust the one who isn't. Behemoth is not confusing to God. Death is not confusing to God. Jesus went to the depths of the grave and was raised again. God has known and he's understood death since he created it and ordered it as the penalty for sin. It is not confusing to him. He has been there and overcome it. Leviathan, evil, is not overwhelming to God. It has a limit. God has it on a leash. And he will destroy it once and for all one day. Revelation chapter 21 talks about the new heaven and the new earth that John saw coming down, that God one day will live amongst his people and he will be their God and they will be his people. And there was no longer, it says, any seed. You know what that's a symbol of? Not that the oceans necessarily dry up, but that evil is gone. Confusion is gone. The truth is, folks, we can fear everything else or we can fear God. And those are only two choices. 
when Job got the chance to hear from God, finally he was overwhelmed. Are you, are you in control, Job? No, no. Then trust the one who is. Job, you scared of death? You scared of the evil you see in the world? Yeah. Then trust the one who isn't. Look at Job's response in the middle of all this in chapter 40, verses 3 to 5. Job answered the Lord. He said this, I am so insignificant. How can I answer you? I place my hand over my mouth. I've spoken once and I will not reply twice, but now I can add nothing. What can I say, Lord? God's point wasn't that Job would understand everything that had happened to him but that Job would learn to trust God, no matter his circumstances, no matter his tragedies, no matter his confusion, no matter his fears, no matter what. Job wanted to have an answer for everything. You like that? I know I am. Wanted to have an answer for everything, and what he got was a God for everything. And I really believe that we can search to have answers for everything, or we can simply seek God, and He will be our everything even when we don't get answers. And at this point, Job says, there's nothing left for me to say. There's only a God for me to trust. There are things in your life, as you well know, that will never, ever have an answer. You will go to your grave asking the question of why. And I don't know if we can handle the truth anyway, you know. And nor are we entitled to those answers. God simply wants us to trust Him whether we have the answers or not. It's called faith. The Bible tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so I guess a sermon today for you and for me is simply, if we recognize we're not in control, then let's trust the one who is. We recognize we've got fears, let's trust the one who's not afraid. Jesus Christ proved that He was in control and He was afraid of nothing. And let's trust Him today. Let's pray together.